This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hi, folks. Welcome to Inclusive Collective, where we share stories and learnings of inclusive people, organizations, and innovation. I'm your co-host, Nadi Butt. I'm an organizational development and belonging strategist. And my co-host is Rob Hadley, a people and culture strategist specializing in DE&I and people analytics. This week on Inclusive Collective Bonus Edition is a conversation that I recently had with Catherine Vasilopoulos, host of the podcast, And So She Left. You will hear me talk a little bit more about me and my background. Kind of boring. But also you'll hear me talk about the Inclusive Collective podcast origin story and what led me to my career as an organizational and leadership development professional. You'll also hear me mention a few values that are really near and dear to my heart. Some of those are learning, community, and identity. Oh, and I talk a lot about leading with humility, so you'll hear me talk about that. I hope you enjoy the conversation. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Hi, I'm Catherine Vesilopoulos. Starting my own venture wasn't easy. After a decade working in the corporate world, I realized that so many things were out of my control, like layoffs and changes in direction. I didn't like the instability. I didn't want that to define my whole career and professional story. And so I left. I started my own company and achieved more than I ever imagined. Now I'm on a mission to share stories from extraordinary entrepreneurs who are changing the world and who never gave up on their vision. Sometimes the way we're perceived by others doesn't reflect our true value. And sometimes a conversation about our differences can be the catalyst we need to start changing hearts and minds in the workplace and in communities. This awareness of our differences can hopefully start shaping a mindset of richness rather than division. Nadia Butt, host of the Inclusive Collective podcast, was born and raised near Boston to Pakistani immigrants. She grew up in a predominantly white community, and the challenges of finding identity, seeking community, and navigating Islamophobia after 9-11 impacted her deeply. 
When she started working, she made it her mission to empower others who faced similar challenges. With her consulting company, she's helped to support marginalized communities and assist entrepreneurs in embedding diversity, equity, and inclusion, also referred to as DEI, within their organizations. In our thoughtful conversation, Nadia emphasizes the importance of self-reflection and embracing differences. She shares personal stories of racial bias and the disparities she's observed in the workplace, such as unequal pay, based on characteristics such as gender and race. Throughout it all, Nadia provides insights into the complexities of DEI work, learning, community, and identity. Hi, Nadia. Hello. Hello. Nice to meet you. And thank you so much for agreeing to be part of this episode. I'm very thrilled to meet you and to be able to have this conversation with you. Same here. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here and really happy to meet you. So you are the host of a a podcast called uh, Inclusive Collective. Is that right? That's correct. Yes. Can you tell me a bit more about what that is and the mission of this podcast? Yeah, absolutely. So um, Inclusive Collective Podcast is a podcast where we talk about the intricacies of diversity, equity, inclusion in the business world. Um, So I'm one of the co-hosts. The other co-host is Rob Hadley. And we kind of came about this idea. Oh, gosh, it originated out of actually a consulting gig that we both had um, for the Mars Corporation and their accelerator incubator program for their founders. And what we realized and recognized through conversations with some of these founders um, and entrepreneurs was that they didn't have the resources or probably even the time or network to really thoughtfully engage or embed some of the DEI practices into the organization. And so um, Rob and I were like, oh, how do we better support? There's so many right now, especially with this gig economy. There's so many founders and entrepreneurs that might be looking for support. How did you develop an interest in DEI? And tell us a bit more about your professional background. Yeah, absolutely. So um, there's three values that I really bring to the table that I deeply are passionate about, which is learning community and identity. And you'll hear me kind of talk or touch upon these three things throughout. Um, So previously, um, I worked for two Fortune 500 companies. The first one was a leading insurance company based here in Boston. Um, And I joined them soon after I graduated from university at at a young age. And I was there for 15 years. I learned so much. I gained so many skill sets and and experiences there, um, providing communication, how managers do performance evaluations, coaching conversations, how to give and receive feedback. All of these things to me really align to diversity and inclusion, but also, you know, leadership development work. So that's the work that I am really focused on right now, situational leadership, leading with humility. And so part of my responsibility at this um, first company that I worked at for 15 years was embedding the DEI practices and principles into the behavioral frameworks. Um, I have a background in change management, um, particularly change for teams and coaching managers on change and what to expect. As we all know, change is really hard. The second organization that I worked for was a leading healthcare company, and I spent a short time there, just two years. I had an okay experience with them, not the best leadership, 
I observed a lot of behaviors that didn't align to my, you know, my own values or even the express values of the organization. It's interesting because from both of those organizations, I was actually laid off. Oh, really? And was, yeah, I was provided severance time. And at the time when you're laid off, I'm sure other people can relate, but the first time I was laid off, it was a blessing in disguise. Like at first it was a sudden shock because the way that I was laid off and many of my other colleagues, um, it was an organizational kind of department wide layoff. And so there was, you know, 25 plus folks that were laid off at the same time. And the way that it was done, um, they thought there was communication, but it ended up being a lack of communication. It was over a two month period of time. People were just really fearful of, you know, am I going to lose my job? Do I have something to fall back on? First, I was presented a severance package and then I was presented an opportunity to apply to one of the new roles that they had created. And I decided to actually take the severance package. It was time for me to leave. It was time for me to do something different. I wasn't anticipating it, but I wasn't as shocked mm-hmm. as the first layoff, um, probably because I was ready. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> all right, I've done this before. I can do it again. And so when I was laid off from these organizations and provided severance, it was, it really both of those times forced me to actually pause and kind of adjust. It gave me time to think about, like, what do I really want to do? Um, I knew I wanted to make you know a change in a more impactful way. And so that led me to my consulting business right now, which is Nas Consulting. So I'm founder and principal consultant, and we focus on leadership development, strategy and planning, um, and coaching. You did a lot. That's such a rich background. (laughs) Yeah. And that's, it's interesting because, sorry to interrupt, Catherine, but that's just professionally. Like, there's so much about, of course, all of us have, you know, our own identities, you know, kind of what brings you to even your professional life. Do, should I dive into that? Well, idea? that's what I was going to ask you next is because you, you come at it with a personal point of view as well, which probably uh, informed a lot of your choices and, and your decision to now do what you're doing currently. So tell me more about your your ethnic background and your your parents, your childhood and, you know, the identity that, that comes with all that. Yeah, of course. So I was uh, born and raised in the U.S. um, in a small suburban town, 15 miles north of Boston. I'm a daughter of Pakistani immigrants. I identify as Muslim. I'm a sister and I'm a a recent auntie. My brother and his wife just had a baby. So an auntie to a four-month. I know, (laughs) four-month Congratulations. Thank you. So, you know, I grew up in a predominantly white town. Um, Our family was probably one of maybe three Muslim families maybe one of uh, maybe six South Asian families, like very, very small. And looking back, I I do think that this was a big piece of what informed my identity. I'm going to put this in quotes. So I was was normal. Like I I played sports. uh, My parents every Sunday took us to Sunday school, which was, you know, the Quincy Mosque. I feel like I found community in high school or in grade school with sports and, of course, just being in school. And then I found a different world every Sunday, um, finding community at the Quincy Mosque, which was, you know, an hour drive south of the city. And there it was like this racial and ethnic diversity that I just didn't see Monday through Friday. And so I remember when I was growing up, I was friends with, you know, a person who was Jewish and a friend that was Greek Orthodox. And I was encouraged by my parents to visit you know, my Jewish friend's temple and my Greek Orthodox friend's church. And I'm forever grateful to my parents for that, their open-mindedness and their willingness for me to like, you know, push me to go and learn and grow by observing different faiths and cultural differences. I don't 
know if that's necessarily the case for every single person I grew up with. I think I was different in that way. That's um, brilliant. Thank you, mom yeah. and dad. That was really yeah, good. Right? Yeah, right? Yeah. yeah, it was incredible. And, and it's powerful because I don't think I appreciated it then. But now looking back, I'm like, it was great. You know, um, it gave me such a profound like respect for people who are just different from me. And I came from a really small bubble, so it made my bubble a little bit bigger. But I also was just different. I was brown. I was Muslim. My parents Obviously, they spoke English at home, but they also spoke Urdu. And, you know, when I went to the university, which was much more diverse and a liberal campus, I became part of, you know, the Muslim Student Association, the South Asian Student Association. So my network grew and I was friends with people of different backgrounds and friends with different ethnicities and races. And, and this gave me perspective, of, of course, as well. And I think it was then that it changed my worldview. I think. It opened myself up to different people, different world perspectives, different world views of how other people see the world. You know, I think it's also worth mentioning that when I was at university, it was at a time um, on campus during 9-11. And so mm-hmm. I had, you know, roommates questioning Islam or asking me, like, well, why do you believe in a religion that promotes terrorism and of course you know you're sitting there having to explain well that's not the case my religion's really beautiful and full of love I remember having a professor telling me um my senior year you know when I went on job interviews to do as much as possible not to indicate that I was Muslim or Pakistani and that that was of course because of the intense you know extreme Islamophobia that was happening I remember even going to like an off-campus party um, where people were chanting "Kill all Muslims." And um, how did you feel you know, when you when you were encountering this? Yeah, I mean, it was scary, right? Because like in many ways, I was fortunate because I'm not visibly Muslim. I don't wear the headscarf. You know, I'm not wearing kind of ethnic clothes, but it's very scary. And so um, I remember my friend had to like kind of walk me home from that party because I was just so shocked and it was soon after 9-11 but it happened for many months after that I mean even years our Muslim Student Association office was vandalized on campus you know I remember my dad even calling me a few weeks after 9-11 happened and he I had like this Pakistani decal flag on my car and he called and he said I just think you should remove it from the car and I did it was an intense time you know and it's interesting because you fast forward you know however many years later And now I'm in the workplace and there's still an uprising of even more hate, more Islamophobia. You have the Trump's like Muslim ban that was, you know, put in place Mm -hmm. in 2017. Right. Um, So this extreme, you know, xenophobia against anyone who like, quote unquote, might look different. And so just even recently in 2016, um, I was walking out of the mall with my parents and two men that were walking in front of us turned around and yelled, go home, you effing immigrants. Oh my gosh. And, you know, so like, it's not even just me experiencing this, but like my family, my friends experiencing all this hate. And of course, it's not just Muslims, right? It's the uprising of all the phobias. It's like xenophobia, homophobia, anti-Semitism. It was terrible. So, you know, all of these things, um, these experiences, even though they're terrible and they're, um, they've made a really great impact on kind of my personal professional desires. And so when I did start my consulting company, I knew I wanted to focus on diversity, equity, inclusion work, but from the lens of change management, from the lens of um, continuous improvement from an organizational perspective. And Can I ask you, what, what did yeah. you have to tell yourself, though, to surmount that? Oh, yeah, that's a great question. Um, 
you bring your authentic self to work and you share your stories and you remind yourself of why you're doing this work and it's really to make change. And if I can change just one mindset or influence one mindset, then I feel like I've done my job. You know, what I always say is people are um, a product of their environment. I, I study social identity theory and our environment really influences what we believe, how we see the world, our experiences. And so because of that, I, I have to pause a lot, you know, and reflect and do some introspective work. And I do hope that that also applies to other folks, but it doesn't. And so there are times where you run into folks in organizations or in communities where they're not willing to change. They're not ready to change. But if you can, you know, even reach that one person that can do some reflection and introspective work to embrace differences, then I do feel like I've done my job. Yeah, it's the beginning of a conversation, even maybe in their own head, after they walk away from talking to you, and then it's starting to see something differently than yeah. what they thought was before. Tend to stick to people they know, to the, the familiarity and the commonality, and anything different may be considered um, fearful or something to hate. Uh, it's it's easy to do that. So. Yeah. Yeah, uh, I think you mentioned something earlier, leading with humility. I wanted to go back to that because that, that mm. intrigued me. I want to learn more about that. What does that mean? When you ask that question, like, tell me about leading with humility. I mean, that encompasses so many things, but it's one of kind of the phases for behavioral change that I believe in. So Ed Shine, who recently passed away, he was a professor and really thought leader in this world. He's from um, MIT and he focused a lot on change, but also just like leading with humility. He wrote this book called Humble Inquiry. The book was really about how leaders can show up by having more inquiry. And so when I think of behavior, you know, phases for behavioral change, I think considerations for productive environments have to include introspection. They have to include reflection, especially because the decisions have bias in them. Conversations have bias in them. And so mm -hmm. when you're showing up with humility and you're asking questions, you're seeking to understand, you're seeking to really learn and grow. I think that's really powerful. And I, I do want to touch upon kind of, I had mentioned earlier, these three components of learning, community, and identity. And, you know, when I think of learning, like today, people think DEI work right now is training or any sort of like leadership building is training. And yeah, of course, that's a component in awareness building, but DEI can't just be training, right? It has to be kind of experiential. It has to be parts of mentorship. It has to be transformational. People learn in different forms, in mm -hmm. different paces, in different modes, right? Right. There's different styles and preferences and self-directed learning or the ability to like draw on your lived experiences to assist with the learning. I mentioned there's like this deep introspective and reflection work. There has to be a willingness to want to learn. And then the willingness and the ability to be able to practice and apply what you learned. And then, you know, we have to recognize that there's different learning styles and, and there's folks that are neurodivergent and there are people living with disabilities and we have to accommodate that learning. And the reason why I bring up learning, you know, as you ask this question about leading with humility, all of that pertains to it because it's this growth mindset of inquiry that I think is missing, um, not just at the leadership or management level, but 
every person, every employee, every community member. And then when I think about community, I mean, I've always believed in community at a very young age. Like I mentioned, I played on sports teams or I went to the mosque. That was, you know, my South Asian community. And then in college, I was part of all of these associations. Finding community as an adult, I think, can be really challenging for people, especially if you're perhaps, say, like an introvert. I do believe that the more you interact and engage and inquire about people and their differences, I think the more you become aware of your biases and you can start to mitigate them. What kind of Um, biases have you seen people exhibit? I mean, for me personally, I guess for me personally, I've, you know, experienced kind of racial bias and Islamophobia, like I had mentioned before. But Mm -hmm. in the workplace, what I observe, I've definitely experienced, you know, observed gender disparities and biases with pay between, um, you know, male and female. I've observed biases even racially between black employees and white employees in areas where you would not even think that bias exists. For example, mentorship programs or career advancement opportunities, there's more biases that we'll typically see between, you know, men and women. And then, of course, between people of color and white people. And it's so evident when you track that data and you kind of, you know, do an audit around the advancement of those people and those opportunities, you'll see that. It's very evident, very clear. It's very few organizations that have actually nailed that. And I say this every day to managers and leaders that I work with is that most of the biases that show up, show up in your decision-making and your everyday interpersonal interactions. And so what that means is whenever you make a decision, whether you're a leader or you're a manager, you have to do some introspective work, some humble inquiry and some reflection to understand if you've mitigated all of the biases that you could have potentially mitigated And then, of course, like this third piece of identity, right? Like this amalgamation of all these things, like your memories, your experiences, your relationships, the environment that you're in. That's all your identity, the values, your beliefs, your upbringing, your worldview. All of these things make up your sense of self. I truly believe to do identity work, like I said, takes like this deep introspection, deep reflection, work and time. And it goes far beyond what like your physical demographics are, like your, you know, like your race or your gender. It's really reflecting on who you are, what you value, how you see yourself in the world and how you see others. And so I do believe that these three values are interconnected and being able to reflect on like your identity, taking the opportunity to be in community and having that growth mindset and curiosity and learning and leading with humility will help you recognize your biases probably far greater than, you know, an e-learning course on unconscious bias, (laughs) which those are great too. But I think we need to go beyond that type of workshop and that type of training. And that's what I was thinking about when you first brought up the topic of learning is, yes, we do have employee sensitization videos or e-learning modules that they can listen to, but ultimately it's about experiencing it and, you know, having one-on-one conversations or group discussions or encounters with someone that are impromptu and that mm-hmm. force you to go, oh, maybe I could have handled that a little bit differently or I should have said it another way. Uh, you can't learn that by just watching a video. You have to go through it. And it's by seeing the other person's reaction sometimes that we go, oh, whoops, I, I misspoke or that was a bit gauche or whatever the, the mm-hmm. issue is. And so do you think it's up to 
individual employees to bring this up to their managers, or it should be the company's, you know, value system that already has those things in place um, for people then to be ushered into it, so to speak? It's mm, a great question. I think, I mean, absolutely. I think the organization has accountability to provide kind of all the different types of learning opportunities and modes to their employees and experiences. You know, I think there's uh, when we consider like the challenges to adult learning, there's time, there's confidence and there's money. Those are all kind of the three challenges. Mm -hmm. And so like if you don't allocate the time to your employees to be able to learn, they're never going to learn. The confidence is interesting because I think the confidence comes from like a willingness. It comes from a skill set. It comes from even being given the opportunity and the desire to want to learn. And then, of course, the money. So if the organization doesn't have the budget for their employees to go and learn, then oftentimes the employee won't go learn or they'll pay for it on their own and then end up leaving the company. And so I think it's important for employers to allocate that budget for professional development opportunities. But I also think there's a I do think that there's an accountability on the employee as well. I, I do think there's opportunities for the individual to kind of bring to their coaching conversations with their manager and say, I'm looking to grow. I don't know what that looks like, but I, I need help. And maybe I need a mentor that's in my field. They may not know exactly what track they want to go on, but that's the conversation that they could be having with either their mentor mm -hmm. um, or with their with their manager. That's very well said. It's so important to align yourself with someone with more experience who can be your champion, your cheerleader. But what was your experience before meeting the mentors and what was your your journey like in, in those companies that you worked at? Did you need some assistance or with anything or did you have some identity crisis at some point? Oh, <laughs> quite a number of identity crises, uh -huh. that's for sure. Um, yeah, I think, you know, professionally speaking, I've had managers who really had no desire to help me advance my career. Mm. Um, they didn't provide the coaching conversations that I think at the time didn't know I needed. But when I reflect back now, I'm like, I wish they'd given them to me. It was almost as if they didn't have interest in getting to understand what my professional or personal goals were. You know, I've absolutely experienced that. I, I've experienced reorganizations, you know, many of my managers having to make those tough decisions of letting go other people. It's disorganized. It's chaotic. It's done in inhumane ways at times. And, and how do you feel when that's happening? Oh, it's terrible. I mean, my first layoff, I'm not going to go into severe detail, <laughs> um, but it was done in a way where everyone for two months was like, what's going on? What did you hear? When do you think it's going to happen? Because mm -hmm. there was an announcement made that like changes are coming. There's going to be a change. And for two months, there's like this lack of communication and this like chaos that ensues. You're playing with people's lives. You're playing with people's families and income. Mm -hmm. And I know when I walked in that day that they were starting to lay everyone off. This might sound super melancholy. But like we all just started laughing. We we're like, yeah, like they were literally handpicking people, not handpicking, but they had previously handpicked people. And every kind of half hour on on the half hour, they would literally pull one person up and be like, OK, here's your severance package. And you'd walk back to your desk and you would literally look around and be like, did you get laid off? Like, did you get laid off? And like 75 to 80 percent of the people were laid off and the other survivors had this massive survivor guilt. 
and have to walk into the office and look a bunch of cubicles that are empty that used to be full of colleagues that they liked or, you know. Totally. I mean, one of them was my best friends. And I remember driving home with her the day that I got let go and she didn't. And she was just like, I don't want to make this about me at all, but I cannot like, what am I going to do without you? Like, this is Mm. terrible. I'm so. And it's like, yeah, you form these relationships and bonds with these people who basically become your family, like in the workplace. And you do feel like you're treated like a number after you've provided all of this loyalty to an organization. But at the end of the day, like I said, it's a blessing in disguise because even though something negative was the outcome, I actually believe for me, it was the relationships that I built and the network and those long lasting friendships and many of the opportunities and experiences and skill sets that I gained throughout. So I don't look back on it as a negative time in in my life. I look at it as like such an opportunity and how it kind of jump-started to the next few things in my life and kind of where I've landed today. That's amazing. What a great uh, attitude to have because some people walk away from layoffs and they are devastated and it just leaves them bitter. Uh, And as you said, the key word is loyalty. You know, you have this loyalty towards the company and then they treat you like a number. Yeah. So you definitely saw this as an opportunity to jump from one thing to the next and it opened up the next door for the next phase of your life. That's the only way to look at it, really. Yeah. So anyone going through a layoff right now, if you're listening, it's okay. It'll be okay. Yeah. Yeah. So let me ask you one last thing then. Where where do you hope things will go in the DEI space? I hope that... I hope that... It's okay to get emotional. We always do on the show. (laughs) I hope that leaders continue to see the value in embedding diversity, equity, inclusion into everyday practices and behaviors and that there's accountability and that goals are aligned to organizational priorities. At the end of the day, we can call diversity, equity, inclusion whatever we want to call it, but it really is just showing up and treating people with dignity and respect. I do believe that we are seeing incremental change. I see it in my consulting practice every day. I do fear, though, that it will not remain as a priority because we've managed to kind of separate DE and I from organizational strategic departments Instead, it should really be just embedded into the culture. We're headed in the right direction, and I do see some bumps in the road. I will continuously be advocating for this work. Thanks so much for listening to this special episode. And thanks to the team at And So She Left Podcast for having me on. Just a reminder, um, Inclusive Collective comes back in September with season four. We're really excited to share what we have in store for you. Some amazing guests, a new logo, new rants and raves, all really cool stuff. Inclusive Collective is a production of Refilion Media. We'd love to hear from you. So please send us your feedback at inclusivecollective at refilion.com. You can also find us on LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and TikTok. If you like what you heard, please be sure to subscribe and rate us wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to get in touch with me for consulting, you can check me out at nasconsultants.com and Rob at tacanoconsulting.com. We'll see you soon, folks. Be well.